It's Thursday, February 29th, 2024, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Of all the weird, generally international things that I'm interested in, vexillology, Charles Babbage, comparing land masses to the size of Belgium, perhaps the hardest to fathom, even to myself, is Transnistria. Why Transnistria? Well, firstly, what Transnistria? German broadcaster DW helped me out. The self-proclaimed Republic of Transnistria is a tiny sliver of land located between Ukraine and Moldova and falls within Russia's sphere of influence. It broke away from Moldova during the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, but isn't internationally recognized. Trust me, if I drew you a map, you would not recognize it either. It looks like a shaky vertical squiggle somewhere to the east of Moldova. Or to hear the Moldovans tell it, within eastern Moldova. And except to the Transnistrians and the Moldovans, maybe the Russians a little, the stakes could not be lower. The Transnistrians claim we are part of Russia. And Russia, which as we know is eager to reclaim territory and assert their old empire, says, yeah, sure, okay, if you say so. You sometimes hear Transnistria called the breakaway state of Transnistria, but in the sense of breakaway sweatpants that the wearer never snaps off. Or maybe better, let's move away from the breakaway analogy. It's a breakaway state in the sense that a mobile home is just that. It never really moves or changes status. But now Moldova is talking about joining the EU. The EU is talking a little less about that than Moldova is, but it has reawakened some pro-Transnistrian sentiment in Russia. Maybe, they hope, certainly reawakened some pro-Russian sentiment within Transnistria. The Carnegie Endowment for Peace has a write-up that says, An extraordinary parliament session in Transnistria was a bid to attract international attention. Such extraordinary sessions are rare. This was the seventh in the 34 years of Transnistria's existence. Well, I'd hope it was rare if it's extraordinary. Also, I don't know about this 34 years of Transnistria's existence. Either it goes back to 1367 or it's just the same as Moldova's existence. Anyway, we can say that. Amid rising tensions, and you ever hear a story admit that it's the same amount of tensions, but amid rising tensions, the parliament of Transnistria, which is a kind of imaginary place, decided to pass a resolution asking Russia's parliament to, quote, protect Transnistria against mounting pressure from Moldova. I would have said against moderately stable pressure from Moldova, but you get it. You want to emphasize the stakes. As the report says, Transnistrian officials, particularly senior ones, have avoided traveling to Moldova proper, which is hard. If you're in Transnistria and you stumble slightly to the left after two swigs of Vishinata or Zmurata, you're in Moldova. Zmurata from the inside on raspberry liqueur, you know what I'm saying? And if you don't, learn Transnistrian, or as they say in Moldova, Moldovan. I was recently talking to a guy from Transnistria. I was more fascinated with Transnistria than he was. I know I'm more fascinated with Transnistria than the Russians are, though I do hope, after lavishing the land with care, time, and attention, I hope I have piqued your interest some in all things, or some things, or at least just one thing Transnistrian, that thing being that there is a Transnistria, which I firmly doubt that there really is. But what I'm saying is Transnistrian lives matter, ladies and gentlemen. Shout it from the rooftops, because if you do, they'll definitely hear it in Moldova. In fact, they might say you're already there.
On the show today, Jesse Jackson urges progress. Why don't we do him the favor that Meet the Press didn't? We'll deliver a progress report for him. But first, James Swanson is a writer and historian. One of his most popular books is Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer. That shall be released as a new Apple TV Plus series in March. But today, he is here to talk about his work on his new book, The Deerfield Massacre, a surprise attack, a forced march, and the fight for survival in early America. You know, the Deerfield Massacre took place in 1704. The date was February 29th. Only it wasn't because they didn't really use our calendar, but that's the best we could call it. Really, that's a long time ago. And the book talks about how French and Native American raiders attacked the English colonial settlement of Deerfield. James Swanson is up next. In the early morning of what we now call February 29th, 1704, a raiding party of French and Native Canadians, Native Americans, Indians descended on the town of Deerfield, Massachusetts. The gash in the door is all that remains of that event where settlers were slaughtered and kidnapped and taken hostage and dragged away. The events of that day resonate throughout the ages, and they have been unearthed and examined in James L. Swanson's new book about the Deerfield Massacre. Swanson is also the author of several historical books like Chasing Lincoln's Killer, The Search for John Wilkes Booth, and uh, they're making an Apple Plus TV series out of that one called Manhunt. Hello, James. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I don't have to tell you as someone who write books about history, but 1704 is a long, long time ago. In fact, you know this, 1865, when Lincoln was killed, is almost precisely as far from today as 1704 is from 1865. So my question is, were there appreciable differences in uh, plumbing the depths of those two different eras that took place in our imagination as just the past, but in reality as 150 years apart? Well, Deerfield was more than 300 years ago. It's really a story from a vast, lost early America that we don't remember anymore, that we don't recognize. Remember, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, they, those people hadn't even been born yet. That was the early, early America. It was a dangerous, mysterious, and dark and frightening time. And so what I try to do is resurrect that era in my book. People believed in witchcraft. The Salem witchcraft trials and executions had happened only a few years before Deerfield. So it was, a, it was an America that, that we don't recognize. The founders of the nation would not have recognized and remembered Deerfield. Should we think of it more like um, what is in our imagination of England or what is in our imagination of colonial America? Well, it's early colonial America at the very founding. When the Puritans came with, with, with the, the city upon the hill and their mission. And so it was a religious time. It was a time of isolation. There was no one there to greet them and welcome them. They had to carve out their space in the wilderness. And they were under constant threat in early America of Indian attack and Canadian attack. It was the time of King Philip's War in the 1670s when many New England towns had been wiped out by Indian attack. 
So when they settled the area, uh, as your book reports, they were under, I don't know if it was the impression or it was just their own cognitive dissonance that wanted them to think that there were no other people there. They had no conception that they were uh, taking other people's land. And to the extent that they did, they entered into contracts with which the natives of the land had a totally different understanding than they did, right? Exactly. The natives didn't think of land ownership, owning the, the piece of property itself. They thought of shared use, hunting, fishing, agriculture. And when the settlers came to Deerfield, the Bacumptic Indians had vacated that land. So they didn't expunge a tribe from that land. They thought it's open land. It's free for the taking. And they were they were wrong. Yeah. What was the military or political considerations of the raiding party of that day? Well, there were a few. This happened during the great Queen, Queen Anne's War of 1702, when England and France were fighting over who would succeed and take over the Spanish throne. And England and France were also vying for the continent of all of North America. So it was an international conflict, which came across the ocean and impacted Deerfield. Now, you mentioned Canadian attacks. What was the reality of that? Well, the Canadians were led by Jesuits in Canada, and they had many alliances with native tribes, Hurons, Mohawks, Iroquois, and others. And so they allied with the Indians to fight the English. And that's what happened in Deerfield. Of the raiding party of about 300 people that, that slaughtered Deerfield, probably 250 were natives, and about 50 were Canadian officers and militiamen. So it was a very much a Canadian-led mission, but with hundreds of Indians helping. So the Indians uh, supplied the manpower and the Canadians supplied the intelligence? Yeah, the, the plotting, the planning. The Indians were not the servants of the Canadians. They viewed themselves as equal partners to the French, and they were. Did the Indians perceive that the English settlers would somehow do what they did, which is essentially uh, wipe them out and uh, erase them? No, the Indians had their chance. Uh, the last chance of the Indians to fight off the, Canadi the, the, the English and the white settlers was probably near King Philip's War in 1675. If the natives had allied themselves together and not been against each other, not competing, fighting each other, that last chance to drive the white settlers off North America was in the 1670s. By the time of Deerfield, the die was cast. It took a few hundred years, but in the end, the whites triumphed in the end, and the Indians lost the Great War for America. Give me some details about the extent of the slaughter. Well, the Deerfield was populated by about 300 people, men, women, and children. And of those 300, 50 were killed that night, including Reverend Williams' children, the leader of Deerfield. They were slaughtered on his doorstep. His wife was tomahawked to death the next day. And then of the survivors, 112 were taken captive and sent on a forced march to Canada through 300 miles of snow and ice in the middle of February. And Along the way, another 20 were killed during the journey. People who couldn't keep up, babies, small children, pregnant women. So another 20 people were slaughtered on the way to Canada. And ultimately, three years later, Reverend Williams and num a number of the settlers came back safely to Deerfield. And it was great redemption and a great triumph in New England. And he became an early American hero. When you go to Deerfield now, as you did and there is a museum and there is the only relic is the door reverend williams door that survives right well it, it it's the uh the sheldon house door 
William's house okay. was burned down after okay. part of his family was killed and he was taken captive. But one of the houses that resisted the Indians was the Sheldon house. Yeah. And that house survived till the 1840s. And then it was torn down and sold off in pieces. But the old Indian doors, it became no survived. Double think Massachusetts oak studded with hundreds of iron nails to repel the flailing tomahawk blades and axes. And they couldn't break down that door. They tried to burn it down. They tried to use manpower and push it open. They tried to cut through it. All they did was cut a little hole through it, thrust a musket barrel through and fire a wild shot that happened to kill a woman by chance. And that door survived and became one of the great early relics of historic field. And it's still on display at the Pumpkin Valley Memorial Association Museum in Deerfield. It's one of the great relics of early America. So the book is occupied with this story, this, um, you know, the genre would be something like uh, adventure. Uh, it was obviously horrible for the people involved, but we get invested and we want the people of Deerfield to be saved and not slaughtered, though you fill us in on all the context and the details. And then interestingly, a large part of the book is also concerned with the historical memory of Deerfield. And, you know, we have to realize 1704 a hundred years later when no one survived. That was 1804. That was, we barely had a United States of America by then. So that was still in American terms, ancient history. So my question is over the years, over the centuries, how has the story or the importance lesson of Deerfield changed? Well, in many ways, first of all, it became a triumph in the end of the white English colonists. Yes, the town was wiped out, many were slaughtered, they were captured. But they returned, they rebuilt the town, and the story was transformed into a story of defeat and suffering at the hands of the Indians into a great colonial victory. Because in the end, it was the white colonists who survived. The Indians were exterminated, they were erased from history, and it became a story of white triumph. But then, in more recent history, we've come to appreciate the role of the natives. It's a native story, too. And so, they're much more present in the story of the telling of it today. And is there efforts to not just understand their point of view, but to cast them as the more sympathetic figures, uh, the resistance of this settler, uh, what's popularly called now white colonial settler um, incursion? Well, there is. And it's fair to say the Indian culture has really been embraced by the early historians of Deerfield, George Sheldon was a great popular historian of Deerfield, and he would dig up their graves and their bones, not documented, and he was interested in telling the story of the colonial ancestors. If you go to the, the memorial chamber where the old Indian door is displayed in the PVA Museum, you'll see there's a whole wall of carved marble tablets that tells the story of the captives and the killed, and it's filled with very racist language. For example, one of the old tablets from the early late 1800s says, so-and-so was captured as a two-year-old girl, she married a savage and became one. Yeah. And then later, those panels have been revised to be more sympathetic and more understanding of Native culture. Also this, Thomas Edison made a silent film about the Deerfield Massacre, which portrayed them as savages. Only whites were allowed to portray the Indians in the film. And so uh, the, the Indians were portrayed as the servants of the whites, who then they went to the West and left the East to the Natives and the English to keep. But beyond the... or. Yes, beyond the just lack of uh, racist terms or over-the-top caricatures, I think that some 
um, historians look at this and want to not just tweak or correct the understanding, they really want to do something of a 180 and switch who is the uh, protagonist, who's the antagonist, who's the who's brave in this story, who was right and who was wrong. So how did you grapple with that? I grappled it with it in a few ways. I studied a lot of native culture and uh, uh, met a lot of native scholars who are experts on Deerfield and uh, gave me support and advised me. And also this, in the end, it's the story of the people of early America. It's the story about the Indians. It's the story about the, the English colonists. And it's about the interactions and the cross-cultural stuff. A lot of the captives went native and they married Canadians, they married Indians. Some of them didn't want to come back to New England at all. And so it's really about that cross-cultural pollination between the English and the natives and the Canadians. And to me, it's very interesting because Deerfield is the most well-documented town in early American history. It saved everything from the start, the furniture, the documents, the stories. And so uh, Deerfield really is a time capsule of, of entire eras of American history. And the other thing that occurred to me, and it must have occurred to you, though not as you were writing it, but now that you're doing press about it and thinking about it, is when you look at the attacks uh, in Israel of October 7th, there are so many resonances with that. Um, going into homes, burning homes, the details of killing people within their homes, the details of taking hostages, the questions of right and wrong surrounding that. So I, I guess my question is, you must have thought of that. What do you think of uh, what I, what do you think of how much we, well, let me ask a better question. So you must have thought of that. What do you make of the fact that history in this case seems to be, if not repeating itself, then rhyming? Well, it, it does repeat itself. Think of the story of Deerfield and what happened. It's so contemporary. Hostage taking, fires, slaughter, killing women and children and mothers and pregnant women and killing babies, uh, holding people hostage, violence. It, it's the greatest early story of battle and blood, faith and family, endurance and survival in American history. And so many of those themes resonate today. Uh, I, I really sensed the contemporary nature of this story, which is why I think it's so interesting and exciting. It's not some remote, lost, forgotten period. At least it shouldn't be. The issues of survival and family and competing politics and the danger of the wilderness, they're so contemporary today. I think anyone reading my book would feel, is it about today or is it about 300 years ago? Was there an effort not just to rescue the hostages, but to wage war upon the hostage takers? Yes, yes. In fact, on the night of the massacre, the next morning, uh, relief forces from nearby towns pursued the Indians, but they knew this was going to happen. So they laid an ambush and a lot of the, the rescuers were killed. And then that thwarted the rescue effort. And then it was decided because it was an Indian custom to often kill all the hostages if a rescue force came. Even though they had enough people to pursue them, it was decided we can't do it now because they're going to kill all the hostages, which the Indians had threatened to do. But then this didn't end the violence. Raids continued. Expeditions went north to battle the Indians and Canadians. And so the massacre was not the end of the story. It was the beginning of more violence, another 30 years of violence and fear and terror. And were there concerns about uh, creating more enemies by the means at which the original uh, hostage takers were pursued? Well, it's interesting because yes and no. 
uh, the people who were taken hostage and the families of those who were killed never called it the Deerfield Massacre. That came into vogue in, in a century later in 1800. The, the survivors call it the raid, the mischief, the attack. For some reason, the colonists didn't call it uh, the massacre. Uh, violence, slaughter, mercil- mer- no mercy was one of the themes of early America. The colonists could be tough, too. They, they wanted to buy savage dogs to tear the Indians apart. They wanted to raid their camps. And so there was a climate of violence and fear that described all of early America. And I think that's one reason why the hostages never called it the massacre, because they were violent too. Yeah, we sometimes forget how present death was in not just early America, but I think I think I this is true that in Lincoln's cabinet, every single member, every single man there had a child who predeceased him. So this and that was 150 years later, as we discussed. So 100. So this just goes to show that, like I just said, uh, the times were so much different, and the expectations of uh, life and comfort were vastly different. Yeah, Deerfield was a poor town. It was not like elegant like Boston. And Deerfield was not the, the colonial revolutionary war pretty town that we see today. It was rough, poor, and people had to carve out their living in the wilderness. It, it was when you see Deerfield today, which I recommend people do, it, it's great. The museums are great. Uh, Deerfield today gives a false impression of what life was like in the early 1700s. There's no evidence of that today, except when you visit the old Indian door and go to the PVMA Museum in Deerfield. So not only do you write about ancient America or older America, you write about manhunts. I mean, that's the name of the Apple TV series. You also wrote a book about the hunt for, uh, or at least the escape attempt of of Jefferson Davis. Why are you drawn to that subgenre specifically? People on the move and another party trying to track them down. Well, a few things, because I've written about the JFK assassination, the last days of Martin Luther King, the escape of Jefferson Davis, and now the Deerfield Massacre. Uh, I'm not so much drawn to the blood and the murder. I'm drawn to moments of extraordinary change in America when anything can change overnight, and it does. So if I say there's a unifying theme in what I write about, it's probably that theme. I also do books for children, too, for 9 to 14-year-olds, young adult books. My, My kid's publisher does the Harry Potter books. And I find that kids love history too. And so all my books, you're right, all my books are somehow include violence, blood, manhunts, chases. But the unifying theme is not my obsession with that. My, my obsession is with moments of extraordinary change in America. If you were writing the sort of history that was about the exchange of letters during a diplomatic um, forays, for instance, there would be a lot of documentation. But because you're writing about manhunts, you don't have the accounts of the people on the run. Uh, almost never do you have those accounts. You could find the accounts of people trying to track them down, communicating, or afterwards they might say um, what happened to their captors if they were in fact captured. So have you, over the years, and as you worked on that found ways to deal with the uh, f- what must be frustrating dearth of information during the most important events that you're talking about, the crux and the um, dramatic fulcrum of so many of your stories? Well, there are more sources than you might imagine. For example, when Reverend Williams was re- returned from captivity, he wrote an early book called The Redeemed Captive Return Design. It's about a 120-page book about his experience in the United States. Oh, no, no, no. You're cutting it us off there. Yes, indeed we are. But you can listen to more of this 
on Pesca Plus. We shall give you an additional 10 minutes with James Swanson. We also, should you so try us out, and you can do it for free for a little while, you not only get longer interviews, but you get less ads. So maybe overall you're saving time. So 10 more minutes with Swanson. We've had other Pesca Plus interviews this week only. Usually we have one. Sometimes we have as many as three. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to tempt yourself with more. And now the spiel. It is the last day of Black History Month, and this Sunday's Meet the Press mark that moment with this segment about Jesse Jackson as introed by host Kristen Welker. As we close out Black History Month, we look back to a barrier breaker in American politics, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. He launched his first presidential campaign in 1984, becoming only the second black American to mount a viable nationwide bid for the Democratic nomination. The Reverend Jackson joined our broadcast in the final days of his campaign, making clear that the struggle for racial equality would not be solved in a single election. You must put one foot in the system and one foot outside. We must fight for change. We cannot adjust the party. We must change the party. Got that right to vote 18 years ago after much bloodshed and and death. And yet 18 years later, with this great brotherhood, there are 512,000 elected officials, about 5,200 are black. We've got about 1% of the elected officials. We're about 12% of the population. At this rate, it will take us 198 years to achieve parity. My generation is restless. We must change the system and not adjust to it. Meet the Press quickly pivoted to lauding Jackson for his status as someone who ran for president those 40 years ago, but they never checked in on the complaint, the status of what he was chronicling at the time, the lack of representation by African Americans in government. So I did the work for them. Right now, we have one black governor. We have seven black lieutenant governors. This is with a population of 13 to 14% black, so that number should be 13 or 14. 11% of the members of the House of Representatives are African-American. In the Senate, far less representation than that. Four black senators, Warnock, Scott, Booker, LaFonza Butler of California. In the states... There is a little more, 10.55% black legislators as of spring 2023. That's out of 7,386 total legislators. That's according to the National Conference of State Legislators. To look at non-elected officials, according to data from the American Bar Association of the 1,423 active federal judges, not elected but appointed, only 23% are people of color. And the breakdown includes 11.5% black. Again, this is opposed to or compared with 13.5% of the population. What about mayors? The National Conference of Black Mayors represents more than 641 African-American mayors across the United States. And they draw their ranks from the National Conference of Mayors overall, which has only 1,400 mayors. You have to have a city of the size of 30,000. The point being that 641 doesn't include mayors of towns of 100. They're mayors of significant cities. In fact, the mayors of the four biggest cities of the United States, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Houston. 
Houston, they're all black. When Jesse Jackson was talking on Meet the Press in 1984, this was before the following cities ever had a black mayor, and Wilson Good was the first mayor uh, elected to Philadelphia in 1984, but this was before New York City, Baltimore, Seattle, Kansas City, San Francisco, St. Louis ever had a black mayor. So I would say, add it all up, I don't know where he was getting his 500 whatever thousand elected officials, but from every data point I could find, we've gotten, or America has about 10 times the representation of African Americans as they did when Jesse Jackson was talking in that 1984 clip. And it is progress. Is that enough progress? No, it's not with parity with the percentage of the population that is African-American. And maybe you could also say, oh, we've done 10 times better. Have we really? Isn't that it was so horrifically oppressed that only 1% of the overall population back in 1984, maybe you don't deserve all the credit for saying you've done or America has done 10 times better. But you know, it is progress. I think Meet the Press should have noted that. It did happen. And it happened because of what Jesse Jackson was talking about. There was lack to no enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. It was, as he said, less than 20 years since civil rights. And even if we had de jure rights, they weren't de facto. Here's another clip. This is from Jesse Jackson participating in a presidential debate of 1984. And he's talking about some similar stats. Georgia, for example, right now, 30% black, 18 years after the Voting Rights Act. Ten congresspersons, zero black. Supreme Court, zero. Appeals Court, zero. 159 sheriffs, zero. 22 majority black counties without one black elected official. Okay, that's just Georgia. Let's look at the situation in Georgia now. The first black sheriff was elected in Georgia that year that Jesse Jackson was talking, 1984. The Supreme Court of Georgia, not none, but one. The Congress, the congressional delegation, all Democrats in Georgia's congressional delegation, which is to say all five Democrats are black. One of the senators is mentioned, Raphael Warnock, is black. I believe there are no majority black counties with zero officials. I base this on the fact that the Georgia Association of Black County Officials says that they have a member from every one of Georgia's counties. And what about sheriffs? Was it zero or one black sheriff as of May 2022? There are 28 black sheriffs among Georgia's 159 counties. Again, let's recognize progress. But also, let's recognize where there has been a shameful amount of progress. The Supreme Court not great. The Court of Appeals, none, according to Jesse Jackson. Well, you know what it is now? There are 15 members of the Georgia Court of Appeals. There's not zero anymore. There's one African-American on the Court of Appeals. Why? It's not an elected position. I'm not necessarily in favor of electing judges, but when you don't, and when you only get Republican governors, as they've had in Georgia for all the members of the Supreme Court who've been appointed, you get a situation where one out of 15 in a state with about a third of the population who's black, one out of 15 are black. And that's not an issue of voting rights, but it's not right. And it's an issue for which you should vote As Jesse Jackson may have said, he probably wouldn't have stooped to that level of sentence construction. But I do say, if you're going to laud him on the 40th anniversary of his presidential run for being just who he is, which is no small achievement, let us look back on what he advocated for and let us tell everyone that there has been a lot of progress and, of course, still a ways to go.
The Gist is produced by Corey Wara and Joel Patterson. They're the quaint mallards, Joel being the senior producer, Corey the producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for our Peachfish production family, literally in the case of the Pesca's literal family. To advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist, do Peru, G Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.